Section 29 of G.K. Chesterton's newspaper columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. G.K. Chesterton's newspaper columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. Section 29. On What Might Have Been, by G.K. Chesterton. I once met a mystic who talked about things that were so great that they had never been able to exist. I also met a priest who suggested, if I understood him rightly, that liberty and omniscience could be reconciled because God knows not only the future that will come, but all the other futures that would come if a finger turned to right or left. And I have often thought that a new sort of romances might be written upon such hints as were here given by the mystic and the priest. They would be a new kind of historical novels. They might rather be described as unhistorical novels. They would be detailed descriptions of the wild and wonderful things that never happened. Many of them, for that matter, very nearly happened. For instance, there was the wild wedding of Mary Queen of Scots with Don John of Austria. The richest gold and purple might surely be expended by any romancer upon all the stages and surroundings of that great event, without any trivial scruples about the fact that it did not, strictly speaking, ever occur. Don John of Austria, perhaps the one really heroic figure of the Renaissance period, certainly the one really romantic figure of an increasingly rationalistic period, did include in his bold and picturesque plans the idea of rescuing Mary Stuart from prison, carrying her off and actually marrying her, as Andrew Lang sardonically adds, he was incapable of fear. Anthony and Cleopatra are really a very poor substitute for such a historical love affair, but as Cleopatra herself says in Shakespeare's play, nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy. Or in other words, there is not material enough in all the mountains and all the thunderclouds to make anything worthy of that moment of meeting. Between the heart of Holyrood and the sword of Lepanto, I have not seen Mr. John Drinkwater's play about Mary Stuart, much as I admire his play about Abraham Lincoln, and I am a little puzzled by the critical accounts of it. As far as I can make out, it opens with a modern, a very modern argument to the effect that a woman can love two men at once and Queen Mary is raised from the dead as a sort of illustration, and is represented, very truly, I think, as a woman who suffered from never meeting a man in any way worthy of her. But dramatic critics are curiously obscure, and I cannot quite understand why we should deduce this doctrine that a woman can be in love with many people from the fact that one particular woman was not in love with anybody. But it is unfair to judge an author, especially a good author, through his critics, and I expect Mr. Drinkwater's meaning has in some way been missed, but whether or no his play was consistent with his prologue, it seems to have been consistent with his subject, and the historical truth about it. Mary Stuart did, I think, suffer from her own superiority to her own surroundings. If ever there was a woman who went to seed by being left like Penelope among the unworthy suitors, I fancy it was she. No one ever came to draw the bow of Ulysses, but I should like to write a romance in which a very long bow should be allowed to Don John of Austria. I wish he could have taken his very long shot with his very long bow and brought down that wild bird of paradise. There are other frustrated fates of the same kind. Two of them hover over two of the kings of England. After his brilliant raid upon Acre, Richard Coeur de Leon actually came within sight of Jerusalem and refused to see it. With one of those giant gestures that make an epic of the earlier Middle Ages, he hurled his shield and lance to the ground, and lifting up his arms cried upon God to hide the holy city from him since he might not enter it, a renunciation not without grandeur. 
But suppose he had been able to advance, suppose his supports had gone forward, instead of turning back, some said by treachery, I think the whole story of the world would have been different. With a new Jerusalem ruled by a hero like Richard, and a heroine like Berengaria. Unfortunately for my purposes, there are two fatal objections to both these visions. I will be a patriot even in my dreams, and I deeply regret to say that I do not see how the victor of Lepanto could have rescued Mary Stuart, except by something like a victory of the Spanish Armada, which I absolutely refuse to allow, and I do not see how Richard could have sat in the seat of Godfrey without leaving my unfortunate country even longer under the paternal care of John. But for me, the most moving example of a mysterious might have been will always be Richard II. I think his deposition was the turning point that turned all England in the direction of oligarchy and the race for wealth, but perhaps the more crucial turning point comes not at his deposition but soon after his accession, when he rode forward as a boy beside the body of Wat Tyler and cried out to the revolutionary peasants, I am your leader. He flung open for a moment the gates of a future that was indeed too great to come to pass, and in a real sense too good to be true. Nor was it his fault that those gates of gold closed again with a clang. He was very young, and the letter of the law was on the side of the feudal parliament that overruled him. But young as he was, he did his best in pleading for the popular cause. There are the materials for a marvelous romance even in what is known, or half known, about him. The strange story of the young priest, who was his double, of the alleged escape from Pomfret, of the appearance of the fallen prince like a pale ghost out of the grey mists of the western isles of Scotland, and the tale of how an English jester named him and how he denied his name. Only obviously, the romance must end with a restoration, with one of those risings in the north, bearing Richard southward, in triumph between the banners of Percy and Douglas, that faced each other so long across the border, as they faced each other at Chevy Chase. And that is another of the things that were too great to happen. Someday, I will write a learned and exhaustive history of England since the reign of Richard II. I mean, of course, since the triumphal return of Richard II from Scotland and the overthrow of Henry Bolingbroke. As the story approached modern times, there would be needed, perhaps, a little play of the imagination to describe exactly what was happening by the time that the Parliament was not quarreling with Charles I. Or at the precise date when the American colonies were not fighting against George III. But the study of the events immediately following the medieval restoration would need not a little interesting study of medieval conditions. A friend of mine, who knows much more history than I do, made a very true remark to me the other day about certain catchwords and cant phrases of historical criticism. He said reflectively, and with a sort of absent-minded abruptness, I wonder how many hundred people have written these words. A very different picture is given in Piers Plowman. When he said it, I realized suddenly that I had indeed seen that conventional comparison between Chaucer and Langland repeated everywhere like a pattern. I can truly say that I had always thought it not only conventional, but unconvincing and unreasonable. The pictures of Chaucer and Langland differ as portraits and landscapes differ, because they are meant to be two different things, and not because either of them is untrue. It would be easy to apply the method to two writers in any period. Nothing would be easier than to say of the 19th century that its spirit was delightfully described in Tennyson's poems, but that a very different picture was given in the Book of Snobs. Nay, it would be equally possible to say the same thing, not only of two men of the same period, but of two books of the same man. Nothing would be easier than to dwell on the gaiety and good fellowship of Pickwick, and then say solemnly, a very different picture is given in Oliver Twist. 
but a study of Chaucer, the humane humorist, and Langland, the spiritual satirist, would alone provide between them hints enough for the happier England that might have been founded at that time. Chaucer and Langland do not differ in the least in any of those things which are called theoretical, and which ought to be called fundamental. Langland was more of a democrat in the sense of a demagogue, because it was his job, but Chaucer was quite as much of a democrat as regards the dogmatic minimum that constitutes Christian democracy. He himself happened to live with gentlemen, but his doctrine is clear enough when he writes of the gentleness that comes of Christ and not of class feeling. Langland wrote of abuses which thwarted, as he thought, the popular happiness, but there is nothing whatever to show that he would not have been as happy to see happiness as Chaucer himself, and if we read the two side by side, we shall feel that out of them a merry England might indeed have been made. If at the beginning of Richard's reign, anything like a peasant's program could have been bucked by the mighty prestige of medieval monarchy. I do not mean by merry England a modern utopia, which indeed is seldom merry and is not allowed to be English. I do not even mean an earthly paradise in the manner of William Morris, in which everyone is supposed to be happy. But everyone has to be a little flat in order to be decorative. I mean, by merry England, a world of quarrels, controversies, sins, sorrows, and stupidities, such as are jumbled up together in any healthy human life, but of which the test and judgment is Christian, and not, as it has now become, heathen and even barbarian. With the fall of Richard Plantagenet, two fatal ideas entered the English mind. The first was that there is something unanswerable about success, and something promising about new men with their new money. The second was that there is something hopeless about loyalty, or in other words, that there is something useless about tenacity. We learn to talk nonsense against consistency and against logic, forgetting that logic is simply an intellectual sense of honor. Consequently, the moral sense of honor has vanished along with the intellectual, and while other nations are rediscovering their foundations, our own ruins are buried under rubbish heaps of constantly worsening material. The harp that once from Tara's halls is making a considerable noise now, and even the Jew's harp is recalling the harp of David. But of the horn of Robin Hood, we can only say, with little John, I fear my master is nigh dead. He blows so wearily. End of section 29. Recording by Arden.